please join in with the reading of the scriptures. First one's from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. In their pew Bible, the Old Testament, 615. So I became great and suppressed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was, vani all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now please turn to Luke on page 69 in the New Testament. Chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Then he said to them all, If you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves. End of the reading. We have been working through a series called Braving the Shadows, and we've talked about different kinds of fear that we are hopefully feeling more courageous to walk through. Uh, we talked about fear itself with Gideon, talked about the fear of pain with Ananias who was called to go minister and heal someone who had seek to hurt him. Uh, we talked about the fear of losing control with Abraham of just go, I'll show you the place where you're going to go. And we talked about the fear of isolation last week with, with Adam and Eve and uh, when they feel cut off and how do they respond to isolation. And today we turn to a new type of fear uh, one in which I find myself somewhat reminiscing about because significance or the purpose of things comes up a lot in conversation right now. Uh, can anybody guess what my three-year-old's favorite question is at this stage of her life? Why? Gwen, go get your shoes on because we're going to go get something to eat. Why? because we're gonna get something to eat. <laughs> and everything that you say suddenly is a question. But that's okay, little ones are learning what's the purpose, what's the motivation as they start to ask that question for themselves. And that question's not gonna go away, but maybe you stop hearing it explicitly, why? But as you get older and maybe more cynical, Sometimes you get tempted into a different direction on that why question, and you feel like there's no purpose. Why? Because what is this gonna do? What's gonna happen? Like, 
Am I going to make a difference? Is this going to matter at all? Why even try? And so we actually struggle with, well, why should I do something? Whether I'm just not thinking about it, but, but even worse and more challenging for us is when I think about why and I can't give an answer and I can't see purpose in my life. And so some of us, let's say most of us, maybe all of us, have been tempted because of our social context. We were born into this country where you are tempted to be consumers first and foremost, that what matters, what purpose you have is what things you have, what kinds of things or experiences you had the opportunity to take. And that is a challenging, difficult journey because there's the purpose falls short there. But we, we are sold that kind of message. A, a book that I love, but I'm using to illustrate the point, uh, Simon Sinek has a book, Start With Why, and it talks about motivations, and instead of selling the product, sell the why behind it. And companies are really, really good at doing that. You don't just buy Apple products. Simon Sinek talks about the fact, yeah, it's Apple, they're a company, they don't sell phones or watches or TVs or computers. They sell identity. That if you get my product, now you're a creative person. Now you're a visionary. You might be a little bit younger. You might be a little hipper. You're not like that business suit PC guy, if you remember back to those old commercials. But it's about identity and that maybe if I get enough of these things, I will have some sort of purpose, I'll have some role in the world, I'll have meaning. But all of us really know when it comes down to it, like, it doesn't really give meaning. Because we kind of have two ends of a spectrum of response when you buy any product. Maybe you initially, already from the get-go, have buyer's remorse. So the product didn't even last more than an hour or two, maybe a night, and you're already regretting that thing. You're like, why did I do that? Best case scenario, that thing ends up in either a trash bag or a cardboard box taken to a Goodwill when you're gone. That those things that we love, even when we hold on to them, still don't actually bring the purpose and the value that we often want them to bring us in our life, but yet we still feel tempted that way. And if anybody could have a chance at this type of thing, of like, if I acquire enough stuff, I'll have meaning, I'm gonna suggest our, our best candidate in today's world um, who fluctuates between being the most rich person in the world depending on stock shares on any given day, but Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon. Not only could he buy a lot of things, they sell tons of things. In fact, they actually sell like 40% of e-commerce in the US. 40% of all online sales runs through his companies. And he's someone that uh, at one point a year ago was worth over $168 billion, which just becomes a number that means nothing. It's just too big at some point. And he actually in the last year went through a divorce and so he, he, he in the settlement gave over 25% of his Amazon stocks and still, which was like $30 billion, still had over $100 billion and now uh, his ex-wife is one of the top 10 or 20 richest people in the world herself. And when you have that kind of money, you can do so much. 
And, and they deal with, it's not just that we sell products. I mean, they have their hands in creating movies now and TV shows and, and storytelling. They have their hands in online web services. The CIA puts their data on Amazon's servers. They have a lot of influence. And so what would you do if you had that kind of money? So if we played the consumer game and you had everything, what would you do with it? One thing I enjoy, what would you do with it? Uh, Bezos has built a massive, massive clock. I don't know if any of you heard about his clock. He built a, uh, he's built a clock in West Texas that's worth $42 million. That's an expensive clock. On his property in West Texas, there's a mountain and they've created a 500-foot cylindrical-shaped clock into this mountain uh, with, I gotta just tell you what kind of extravagance this clock has. It's got an eight-foot stainless steel gear, six-foot titanium pendulums. Uh, If you engage the clock's winding mechanism, you get to hear 3.65 million unique chimes orchestrated by a composer. And not one of those chimes will ever come back again for at least 10,000 years. At the top of this clock on the stairs, there's an area made of sapphire glass that feeds the clock with thermal energy and sinks the clock to solar noon. This is extravagant. And it doesn't keep time like normal clocks. Uh, it It keeps real time but it doesn't show the time unless a visitor shows up and winds it, like says, hey, I'm here, give me the time, and then it'll update to the current moment. But it has a clock on it that operates by years, that one of the clock hands only ticks in advance one year at a time. And it's meant to celebrate the century, but particularly the millennium. And it's meant to by itself run for 10,000 years. That is an extravagant clock. And one that doesn't even show time to anybody unless you make it to it. And it's not easy to make it to it. It's several hours from the closest airport. If you fly into that airport and drive a few hours and get to this mountain, and you have access to the mountain, you take a 2,000 foot foot trail up a mountain to get to this clock. All of which is trying to say that there's something bigger than us, time is bigger than us, and yet while it's trying to inspire that, it also reminds us of how fleeting and small we are. And this giant adventure that hardly anyone will ever see is just showing how fleeting our life is and our time, maybe it's clicking on for someone else, but we come and go. And I don't think there's a book in the Bible that better conveys the dilemma of does our life matter and how fleeting is our lives than the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm sure that you've probably encountered with the common English translation that I think confuses all of us, but most people that know the book of Ecclesiastes know it for the phrasing, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that sounds like, you know, like you're self-absorbed, and there's an element to that, but we really miss a step if we jump to that. The Hebrew word for this vanity word that showed up in our reading and throughout the book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, Hevel, only in, in Hebrew it means breath, 
mist, vapor. It's something that's transient, transient or fleeting that just doesn't last. And it's saying everything is just vapor. It just doesn't last. It's here today and gone tomorrow, and I can't touch it, and I can't hold it. And so, yes, as you kind of push this out of all of your pursuits, you're just focusing in on these little things that don't last, and it becomes self-absorbed. And so you can kind of, in English, get to the space that the way we use vanity. But the author is struggling with the fact that he seems to have everything, and yet he feels like he has nothing. And here's how um, the teacher, which is how the book describes um, the speaker of this text, um, who's described as a son of David and traditionally recognized as Solomon, Here's, here's what the teacher says. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my, also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and that was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it and again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so this, this teacher, this king, this, this figure that has everything realizes, what on earth was this all for? He's that person that you really don't want to buy a birthday present for. Like Bezos, what on earth do you get someone that has everything? At some point when you had everything, you're like, well, what on earth do I, what do I do? And then you think, maybe a clock in a mountain. But, but he's realizing, what on earth do I do with all of this stuff? It doesn't matter. And so the, the book itself is the realization that all of that consumer pursuits, all of that pursuit of these transient things, it doesn't matter. And the book kind of concludes turning to young people. It's like the mentor giving advice saying, don't follow the path that I took. Turn to God. And I love that in our reading from Luke, this turning to God of follow God gives this radically different vision of what success looks like, of what failure looks like. And so there's good news that there actually is a purpose, there is significance that can be had, but it's not through our traditional ways of going for it. And so here's what the Gospel of Luke says. Jesus, he's turning to his disciples. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers. People, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like that would show up on the great, like, nice and easy self-help section. Uh, hey, if you, want, if you want to have a life, pick up your cross and follow me. I don't know about you, but I like the image better of just Jesus has his own cross. Why do I need a cross? Uh, but he said, hey, pick up your own cross and follow me. And let us not ever forget what the cross conveys in that first century context. It's the instrument of the death penalty. Uh, it's shame, you know, to be... Uh, stripped naked to be hanging to suffocate in this painful way. It's isolation to be cut off from those around you and would any of your friends or family dare show up to the cross with you? Are you willing to experience the shame, the difficulty, the isolation that might come from following me to 
to where I'm going. It's a hard invitation, and we often make it really easy, really soft, but this is, this is not just for the sake of it, but there's a purpose. And so Luke goes on, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? And I love how Jesus is like turning the world upside down. Whatever you think failure looks like, that's actually the success. And everyone that thinks they have success, it's actually failure. So if you want to save your life, you actually have to lose it. If you're trying you know, the other way, it doesn't work that other way. And so if you want to find significance, if you want to find meaning, you have to stop doing what the world thinks is significant and turn your life over to something bigger than you, something that extends before and beyond you into the path of Jesus. And it's hard for us because we don't realize that sometimes those pursuits that we want aren't always the same as the pursuits of following Jesus. Um, I mean, we want the American dream. Get that corner office. Get that second or third or fourth or fifth house. Because once you get a few more, then it's always like, well, maybe it'd be nice to have another one. Or whatever the next thing is. But it's like, no, if I just give up that stuff, because if I'm just carrying a cross, I don't have much room to carry a lot of other stuff around with me. But do I choose that? Do I choose to carry a cross with my Lord and Savior? And through that, you find salvation. You are saved. And I think sometimes we just, we throw that word around. But to be saved is not only to be saved from death, the, the varying forms of that word in the Greek context, to be healed, to be made whole, to be restored, that all that we were created for might be mended in following the path of Christ instead of our own paths. And so, are we willing to be brave enough to disregard the message that we hear from the world of what it looks like to be successful? Because you can get it in people's looks, that like they stare at you and they're like, hmm, I don't know if your life's turned out the way that, that I think it should. Or why on earth do you give up that Saturday morning for this or that? Like, people can look at you strange. And all the fear of, of how people might see your pursuit of God, um, we need courage. The, and the kind of courage Jesus talks about is extreme. Willing to put a cross on your shoulder and carry it. And so what does it look like to be brave and to follow Jesus into significance, into healing, into wholeness, into life? What would it look like if, if I or if any of us in this room lived that out? That it mattered so much to follow Jesus instead of these other pursuits? Like, would my prayer time be the same? Won't it? Am I having a prayer time? But, like, would I pray the same if it wasn't about what I get out of things, but denying myself and being a part of what Jesus is doing in the world and about other people and what they're going through and what they're struggling through? Would I pray the same if I, if I followed that path? Would my calendar look the same? Whether you got the hard copy on the wall or you got the digital one on your phone, what matters to you? What pursuits 
have value and are significant? What are, again, the, you get the mail, the bank statement, maybe the phone, whatever the checking account says. Would your account look the same based on what matters to you? Is it consumerism? Is it the American dream? Or is it following Christ, Christ with a cross? What if we all lived this way, where we actually took that seriously? I love that on this day, for an annual meeting day, it's that time where the year where we get to sit back and reflect and say, what was God doing? What, was, what have I been doing? Have I given myself over to what God has asking me to do? Have I said yes to God? Or am I still a little hesitant? Still tiptoeing out, not necessarily as brave as maybe I should be. But how has God been moving in our midst and are we willing to say yes to do things that matter? And I think about whether it's our building, you know, is this building inviting people in to the mission of God? Is it welcoming? Is it, is it making people realize that they are loved? Is it being used to make those things happen, to be a, a space where transformation happens? How is our building saying yes to what God is doing? How is our ministries, the things we do, how are they a part of saying yes to things that matter? And so how are our ministries about saving our neighbors, about transforming lives, about healing, not just for the sake of doing things, because we do a lot of things that are great things, but sometimes you lose sight of why. And so just remember, well, why do we give hot chocolate to somebody randomly walking down the street? Like what about that says, hey, we are glad you're here, you are loved, you are welcomed, we have plenty, and God's blessings overflow. We don't, we're not charging you. Take, receive, enjoy. You know, on a Thursday night or, or a food pantry on the Saturdays, why do we give things? It's not just because we like to do it, but how is it a part of the healing of the world? Why do we do what we do? In worship, uh, why do I worship? Do I worship because I just like to do this or that thing? Or do I worship because I actually expect that God might change me? And I want to be more like Christ today. And maybe God might transform me and worship to being more like Christ. Or maybe God might invite me to, to follow him, to walk where he's going, to serve in a new way. Maybe in worship I might realize that I need to be more grateful, more thankful to what God has already done? Why do we do what we do? And I think we need to answer that question for ourselves because what provides sustaining energy and passion to your life, remembering whose you are and why you follow Christ and why you should follow Christ even more but that's the challenge that we face in this world is a growing culture that says none of this matters. Well, why should I go to church? What's the, what's the point? And we haven't always done a good enough job at describing why everything we do matters, how it contributes to changing people's lives, 
how God is at work in our community, and we just say, oh, well, you should just go because you should go. But people need to hear the message of why we do what we do. So I hope that we're reflective on that. Why are we called to follow Christ in the ways that we do? What really matters? And I wonder, as we start to evaluate those things, what in your life or what in our lives is us building clocks and mountains people might not ever get to? They're grand and they're extravagant and they last forever, but like, do they last forever? What's their purpose? What are they gonna do? Or do we look at, at the world and we look for those things that matter? We take up our cross to go suffer alongside those who are suffering when it would be easy to neglect them, to ignore them, but to walk with those in pain, to be a part of God's healing of all. So today I just wanna invite us all to be courageous, to step out into a life that's significant and that matters, to be courageous to choose to follow Christ and to take up that cross each day, to let go of whatever those vain pursuits might be in, in your life or my life or our lives, and to live a life that matters following Christ to heal a broken world. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you know the stories of each person that is in this space that has come from, from different moments in their life, from different, uh, whether it's pains or joys, uh, you know how we have entered this space. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to be mindful of your presence here and that we would find our meaning in you and that whatever it is that, that is needed, that you might heal what is still broken in this space. You might encourage those that are downtrodden. You might inspire those who feel hopeless. Lord, we don't know what someone's going through that's next to us, but you do. And you call us to be mindful. You call us to be joyful and agents of peace. And Lord, I just ask that you would make me and make each of us and make this church a place of healing in a very broken and painful world. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. In a moment, we're going to sing a closing song, My Life is in You, Lord. It's such a simple tune. It's in the gathering book, if you want to look there, or it's in your bulletin, printed in your bulletin as well. But my life is in you, Lord. My strength is in you, Lord. My hope is in you, Lord. So can we pick up that cross? Can we have our hope in the Father to sustain us? Can we believe that our strength can come from the Father? So as we sing this, this morning, may it be a prayer for you or an affirmation. But whichever the case, let's make sure that we are looking at this and looking at our hope being in the Father.